Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on it, on the top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this place that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, as we again uh, consider questions about you, and as we uh, consider uh, this passage that we just read, uh, we ask uh, for you to open our eyes, to, to show yourself to us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as was already mentioned, uh, we are in the second week of this Explore God series, each week focused on a particular question. We're actually joining with over 800 churches throughout the Chicago area and kind of doing this series together. And, and the question that's kind of like the official question that, that we are to consider this morning is, is there a God? And at the risk of being maybe overly bold, I want to suggest that we change that question just, just a little bit, because I actually think that if we ask this question just like that, is there a God, it won't be that interesting because we already, everyone already agrees on that. And, and what I mean by that is everyone already believes the answer to that question is yes. I'm not, I'm not saying that everyone believes in a capital G God, but if we 
simply define God as that which is ultimate, then everyone has a God of some sort, right? I mean, there are those who believe in a personal God that's actually more than half of the world, but there are those who believe in God as kind of a life force that's impersonal. And even those who would consider themselves you know, materialists, that is, all that we see is all that there is, believe in something that is ultimate. So Carl Sagan, who probably would be in that category, an astronomer, said that if we're talking about a personal God, he thinks that's nonsense. But if by God we mean the physical laws of the universe, then yes, there is a God. So some might not believe that there is a person, but, but if you ask them, what do you believe? How do you think this world came into being? They might say that this world has always been. And by that, they're saying that the ultimate reality is this stuff of this world, that the physical laws, that the molecules, the atom, that is what's ultimate. And in a sense, then, that is what is God. Everyone has something that is ultimate. That's not really controversial. And what's more, it's not even that only some have faith and others don't. That's a common way of seeing things today, that there are the people who just believe in fact and science and then those who have faith, but, but everyone actually has faith when we understand it. Uh, the philosopher of science, Michael Polanyi of the 20th century, pointed out that wherever you have doubt, there is always a corresponding belief, right? Because if you think something isn't true, that's because you think something else is true that conflicts with that first thing. So if, if you, for example, were someone who says, you know what, I have, I have come to the conclusion that there is no God. So that's the doubt. What, what, why do you come to that conclusion? It's because you believe something else, right? You believe that somehow your understanding of the world, your analysis of the da data, your, your looking at the facts, is reliable enough to bring you to the conclusion that God doesn't exist, even though more than half the world disagrees with you. Now, why, why do you trust that? Why do you trust in your ability to discern whether or not God is here? Uh, ultimately, it's because you just believe, right? Because it's not like, it's not like the laboratory has tested your rationality, where like you have a placebo test, sometimes you're testing and God isn't there, and sometimes he is, and if you keep on testing, you realize every time God is there, I've gotten it right, every time God is not there, I get it. You can't do that. That's the way you do things scientifically, but you can't do that when we're talking about questions of God. Ultimately, you're just having to trust in your own rationality and conclude that is the most reliable thing. There's faith there. So it's not, it's not a question of is there a God, it's not a question of should we have faith. Everyone believes in some sort of ultimate thing, and everyone has some kind of faith, even if that's just in yourself. The question I think that we're really asking is when we look at this universe, is there a person who stands behind it? When we're talking about what is ultimate, is what is ultimate personal? Is there a plan? Is there someone who sees? When we, when we pray, is there someone who hears? Is there someone who's created all of this and has a plan behind it and is directing? Is God personal? And if so, what is he like? That's, I think that's the question. When people are saying, is there a God? That's really the question. And the reason that I, I want us to, to recognize that's the question we're asking, is there a personal God? 
is that when we start talking about personhood, we have stepped out of the area that science is equipped to help us. Science is great with cause and effect data, but it is not helpful when it comes to questions about persons. So, um, when I was a kid, and this probably reveals more about me than I would like, when I was a kid, it occurred to me at one moment that it's possible that I was the only real person in the universe and everything else was robots. <laughs> I didn't really take that too seriously. It's not like I was really, oh, I think that's probably likely. But, but it occurred to me, I don't have any way of being sure. I mean, how would you disprove to seven-year-old version of me that question? I mean, if you said, well, believe me, I'm real. I was like, yeah, well, you're programmed to tell me that. Right? I mean, there's, there's nothing you could do to actually show me that you are really a person. Because, because the, 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 the proof that we would want doesn't work when it comes to persons, right? Like, we can't, I mean, you can pull apart an engine to understand how an engine works. You can even, like, dissect an organ to see how an organ works, but how do you feel what another person is feeling? How can you be sure that another person is really there? Science doesn't get us there, right? It's a different kind of knowledge about another person. That might feel abstract, so let me give you something that's even more kind of a practical side of that. Think of someone that you are close to. How do you know that that person loves you? This is not like this completely hypothetical question. Oftentimes you'll see in family relationships between couples or between a parent and a child, that very question of does this person really love me can haunt a person because in your insecurity you can say, well, they're being nice, but they're just being nice because they don't want to look like a mean person. They're saying nice things, but they're just saying nice things because they don't want to hurt my feelings. How can you be sure another person loves you? You can't scientifically prove it because you can never know what it's like to be that other person, right? Personal questions, we have to answer the questions differently. I mean, how do we know about another person? How do you know about someone who's close to you? How have you come to know them? It's not through experimentation. It's, well, it's through them speaking about themselves, right? They, they show themselves. They, they open up. And as they open up and tell you about themselves, you, you learn to trust them. And then as that relationship is formed, it's through experience that you come to really know about the other person. Here's why this is important. When we're talking about, is there a personal God, this is the way we come to know the answer. It's not a question of finding just the right facts. We need to have God show himself to us, us to respond in trust, and then over life experience that relationship to come to know the personal God, because that's how knowledge of persons works. And, and that's what we see in the passage that we just read. Uh, we see Jacob coming to a personal knowledge of God. Now, if you don't know much about Jacob, Jacob actually is a very significant figure in the Old Testament. He is, you might say, the very father of all of God's people. He actually, his name is changed eventually to Israel. He is the father of Israel. 
And what's surprising about that is Jacob is not a very nice person. Uh, He is deceptive, conniving, kind of heartless. There's this time when he has his older brother comes and he manipulates the situation because his brother is starving and he will not give him any food until his brother gives him his birthright, his, his privilege of being the oldest. And if that's not bad enough, later on, Jacob takes advantage of his father who's elderly, who is now blind, and his father wants to give kind of his inheritance to the older son, but Jacob tricks him and is able to manipulate and take advantage of his father's blindness so that he gets it instead. You know, if you're, if you're trying to think of um, what, what Jacob is like, if you're a Marvel movie fan, you know Loki? You remember Loki? Clever, conniving? That's Jacob. He's not a very nice person, and he's also not a very spiritual person. So when he's tricking his father, he, when his father asks him a question, hey, you've brought me this food, how did you get this food so quickly? He says, well, the Lord your God gave it to me. He doesn't mind just throwing God's name out. He calls him your God. It means nothing to him. It's just a tool he uses for deceiving. He knows of a God. He knows the stories, and, and that day he probably believes there's some sort of reality to that, but it is not anything personal to him. He has no connection to this. He doesn't know God. So he's in a difficult situation at this point because in this moment, what's happening is he has just had to run away. You know, he, he, treated, he, he tricked his father, and when his brother found out, his brother was so angry, his brother decided he was going to kill Jacob. And so Jacob is sent away to 500 miles away. He has to journey all on his own without really any help, without any supplies besides what he brings with him on his back to go to Uncle Laban's house. And he doesn't even know Uncle Laban. And so here you've got a, a couple days in the journey. He is... He is vulnerable, he is exhausted, he is probably feeling very helpless, he is all alone, and it's nighttime, and so in the middle of nowhere, with nothing else to support him, he finds a rock to make his pillow, and he goes to sleep. And it's at this very moment that God chooses to show to Jacob who he is. We're told that as he goes to sleep, he has a vision, not just an ordinary dream, but, but something different. And, and in that vision, in that dream, he sees this extraordinary structure that goes from all the way down to the earth to all the way up to the sky. It's translated in, in the ESV, a ladder, but it's probably better translated staircase. And most scholars believe that what we have here is, is a ziggurat. Um, If you've ever seen some of those like Mayan pyramids, that's what's going on here. You know, Mayan pyramids where these stairways are going and going and going all the way up. That's what Jacob is seeing. And so I want you even just to imagine, notice how it keeps on saying behold, behold, as if we're supposed to be paying attention and seeing what Jacob is seeing. Imagine right now that suddenly you are in this moment where right in front of us, like the wall of that, of the church is gone and we see this this stairway going all the way up to heaven on this vast pyramid that that we've never seen before because Jacob has seen the exact same land that he had seen before, except now there's this ziggurat where there once was. And, and, And imagine as we look, and on these stairs, there are these hundreds, maybe thousands of 
of angelic beings, maybe looking a little bit like humans, except they're bright and they're strong, and there's so many of them, and they come down the stairway, and they start going wherever God has sent them into the place, and then there are others who are returning up, and we see these angels going down and up and down and up. That's what Jacob is seeing, and then when he looks up way, way up high, he sees God. Have you ever ever wished that you could see God? The, the Bible tells us that it would be a terrifying thing for us, that God is one who is invisible, dwells in inapproachable light, and to be in God's presence, to see him face to face without something to protect us would cause us just to disintegrate. His greatness and holiness and our insignificance just couldn't come together. But, but yet, even still, don't, don't we want, don't we want to be able to see God? That's part of the reason we ask the question, is, is there a God? Is there a personal God? Because we can't see him. We can't hear him. But in this moment, Jacob can. He sees high above at least some bit of the glory of God, and he hears in this earth-shattering, terrifying, so that he wants to just kind of be in a ball kind of voice, God speaking to him and telling Jacob who he is. He speaks of how the very promises I made to your grandfather, Abraham, and to Isaac I'm making to you. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And then he gets to the very heart of what this vision is about. He says, I am with you. Behold, pay attention. I am with you. And I will keep you wherever you go. Imagine Jacob all alone, a failure, helpless, and suddenly the God that he didn't really know was that important until just a few moments ago, telling him with this terrifying voice, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And so Jacob wakes up, and he sees the very place that he had seen before, except now it looks absolutely different to him. I mean, notice what he says. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. It's an extraordinary thing to think about, isn't it, that someone so enormous, so significant, so glorious as God could be right in a place, and yet someone could be so utterly unaware and Jacob said, that was me. It's like, the, it's like the scales have fallen from his eyes. It's like suddenly he can see what he couldn't see before, and he feels things differently. Notice it says, he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place. What has happened to Jacob? Jacob once did not know the personal God. But now God has shown himself to Jacob, and Jacob has received that, and he believes, and now he knows God personally. And he doesn't know God personally because, uh, you know, his, his father kind of debated with him about questions of the problem of evil. He doesn't know it because suddenly the facts have all come together. He knows it because God shows himself. 
And, and if you know the story of Jacob, Jacob, you know that this isn't the end of the story. In fact, even here, you kind of see him hedging his bet. It's like, if you really do this, I'll believe in you. Like, there, there's, there's still a lot of growth for Jacob. It's going to be an experience as the relationship continues to go through difficult things, through suffering, through, through God showing his faithfulness. But he has come in this moment to know God. Uh, if you right now are one who is feeling uncertain about the question of, of if, either, if there is a personal God, I, I am confident that I am not going to argue in you into that knowledge. Uh, don't get me wrong. There, there are rational questions. God never asks us to kind of just throw our minds away in our relationship with Him. There are things that we need to wrestle with, and in fact, in the next few weeks when we ask questions about how we deal with suffering and, and the questions of the narrowness of Christianity, these are questions that it's appropriate for us to ask as we're trying to understand, but they won't be enough to suddenly make someone move from going, I don't know God to, I do. It's not that. What, what we need, because God is a person, is for God to show himself to us and then for us to receive and believe. That's what happened with Jacob. Now you might say, hey, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that because it's not like God has given me that vision and, and that's, that's fair. But, but what... What if I were to tell you that every moment of your life, from the moment of your birth until now, God has been showing himself to you if only you would pay attention to it? You might ask, how? Well, consider for a moment actually some of the things that, that even Thomas was mentioning. Consider Consider the beauty of the snow that we saw just as we were coming in here on this cold, crisp morning. Or, or consider the, the complexity of a tree. Or consider the sound of a newborn baby's cry. And, and how, for many of us, in one of those at least, our heart responds with something, where we feel like there is something, some sort of, of beauty, of, of glory. And, and what, what a materialist science will tell you is that's just natural evolution. That's just our brain kind of responding to certain things, and there's nothing really there. It's just the way that our brains are programmed. But do we believe that? What if it's actually that in the glory of every moment that we're experiencing, God is calling out to us, inviting us to know him. Or think for a moment about um, when we look at things in the world and we feel at certain times just the enormous wrongness of things. We hear about shootings in a kindergarten class. Or we hear about terrible forms of racism and oppression. And part of us, not just kind of intellectually, but in our very gut, says this is wrong. And why do we say that? If we just believe that life is about natural selection, it's survival of the fittest, then we're just kind of making that up because whatever is most powerful is the one who gets to win. Might makes right. There isn't wrong or right. There's just strongest. Why is it that we are so confident that this is wrong, isn't it? Because God has left within us an awareness of what is good. 
And in that awareness, he is calling out to us to see him. Or think about love. Thomas brought this up. I wasn't expecting him to, but it's exactly what I was thinking too when I was thinking about this question. Think about, think about love. Think about the relationship you have where you love someone or someone loves you. Do we really believe that's just the product of evolution of biology and nothing more? I know I don't. And I would suggest that in that experience of love, God is calling out to us. God, who himself is love, is showing us that there is a person behind the reality that we're experiencing. What I'm suggesting to you, and I'm suggesting this because this is what Scripture teaches, is that all of the glory that we're surrounded by, the beauty, the good, what is true, Love, all of it is God's way of saying, behold, I am here. Now, we might still find that unsatisfying. I mean, to be fair, Jacob, that was not enough for Jacob, was it? And, and so we might say, hey, I, I still want more than that. I, I want some sort of tangible awareness that the person of God is here. But I would suggest maybe even a dream wouldn't be enough, would it? I mean, if we have one dream where we feel like we've seen, experienced something, you know how it can work. Over time, that dream, we can just start saying, I probably ate something bad. We need something more, more tangible, don't we? I remember when I was a kid, uh, one of my favorite movies, probably my favorite movie of the first 10 years of my life was Superman. I was very much into superheroes. This was long before superheroes were cool. This was long before... I was cool, I suppose long before is the wrong way of putting it. But um, the, I remember just loving this movie. And there's this one moment where, you know, Superman now has kind of like appeared and he's in the city and people are wondering about him and Lois Lane is given the job where she is supposed to be understanding, you know, figuring out who is this person, what is he like? And she doesn't know even how she's going to figure that out until some moment in the evening Superman just kind of, boom, appears on her balcony. And so she's able to start talking to him. She's met him, Superman, in the flesh. He is able to answer questions about himself. He even takes her to fly with him. That's what we want, right? We want God in the flesh to come to be with us, to tell us about himself so that we can really know who he is. Yes, we know that there would be a, a problem with that because to see God means to die and he's in inapproachable light, but if there's a way that God could kind of come to our balcony— that he could come in the flesh and we could know, then we would know that God is a person and that he is real. I mean, but that is exactly what God has done. God in the flesh became one of us. God in the flesh spoke and answered questions about who he is and he showed who he is and he showed miracles to give a sense of his glory. Jesus, in one moment as his ministry is beginning, he actually says to his disciples, he says, you will see the heavens opened and angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. 
And the Son of Man is his way of speaking of himself. Jesus is saying, I, I'm the stairway of Jacob. I am that connection point where God is making himself known to this world. Later on, one of his disciples says, show us the Father and that will be enough. And Jesus says, don't you understand? If you see me, you see the Father because I and the Father are one. God was so committed to making himself known to us, to you, that he became one of us. And then he showed the kind of God that he is by going to the cross and dying out of love to rescue his people who were enslaved to death and to sin. Now, I realize that for some of you, this is not something that answers the questions that you have because you are wrestling with the very question of whether or not Jesus actually is the Son of God. And, and we will actually be focusing on that exact question in a few weeks from now, and we will consider how these extraordinary promises in the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years before, were fulfilled in Jesus. How, how the teaching and the life of Jesus betray a, show a wisdom and a goodness unlike anything else we've seen, and, and how the resurrection is real, and there's so much evidence for it having taken place. And so, so we will consider that. And if, and if you feel uncertain, feel free to kind of wait and bracket that question. But, but do you at least see how everything actually hangs on this very question? That the question of, is there a personal God, is not going to be satisfied with, with some sort of logical proof, some sort of syllogism where we just get facts and facts and facts and come to a conclusion. The way that we answer this question is to look at Jesus. Because the teaching of the Bible is Jesus is where God has made himself known. And how do you know a person? It's when the person makes themselves known known, and then you respond in a kind of trust, and then as the relationship is formed, you start through experiencing coming to know who that person really is. And I will tell you personally, if you were to ask me now why I believe God is personal and God is real. It's not a proof. There are things that are comforting to me when I think about some of the, the doubts that I've sometimes had. It's not even because of that initial moment. It's because of over 40 years having gone through difficulties and re recognized how God has been faithful and how God has shown himself again and again as one who loves me. It's in that experience, but it begins with God showing himself and us responding in a kind of trust. So I, I don't expect to convince you this morning by arguing you into a belief. As I said, I don't think that's how it works. What I would ask you to do is just to consider. To be open to a possibility that, that what, what the Bible says here is true. So you open to the possibility that for all of your life, whether you have recognized or not, God has been calling out to you through beauty, through love, through truth to know him. That God is so committed to make himself known to you that he actually became one of us and he suffered death for you. To consider 
the possibility that even right now, God is in this place, whether or not you know it. And if you're willing to consider that possibility, I would ask you to do a simple thing, to, in a moment of silence, as we kind of respond to hearing God's Word, to just respond in a simple prayer of asking, God, would you please show yourself to me more clearly? Would you please help me to see you? And then wait and see, and maybe join us in the coming weeks and see what God does. So let's, let's take a moment even now in silence, depending on how God has spoken to you in His Word, to respond in prayer or confession or praise, and then I will lead us in prayer after a couple minutes of silence. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, I confess personally, and my guess is uh, many here would join with me in this confession that there are so many times that you have been showing yourself to me, to us, and yet I have ignored it. I have gotten so often so focused on the things that can dominate my perspective that I have not paid attention to the glory you have shown me. We oftentimes fail to see you as you make yourself known. Lord, I pray for each of us that you would please open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, that like Jacob, we would come to see what we had not seen clearly before, that we would be able to say, surely God is in this place, and that you would convince us through faith in Christ that you are with us and you will keep us wherever we go. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the New Testament, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For those who have placed their faith in Christ, for those who have confessed their sins, in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.